I think this is so important for survivors and so important for anybody in the legal system. I was finally at a place where I felt I had some control because so much of what goes on in the legal system, we don't feel like we have control over. And I can say this to all those listeners out there. It's the same as when you're a law professor. Believe me, it's no different. And welcome to Jumping Off the Ivory Tower with Prof. Julie Mack. My name is Dana Cornwall and I'm the Project Manager at the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Julie McFarland, the Director of the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. And I'm Moya McAllister, the Communications Manager for the National Self-Represented Litigants Project. We are doing a special edition episode of the podcast. This isn't part of our, our regular season, so we won't, we won't start putting out more episodes until some time in the new year. But we wanted to do a special one-off episode because Julie has a new book out, and we're really excited Yay, about it. We want to book. talk about it. So Julie's book is called Going Public, A Survivor's Guide from Grief to Action, and it's about her personal and academic and professional journey mm-hmm. as a survivor of sexual violence. And it is, I can say with authority, an amazing book. Everyone should read this book. And we wanted to talk about it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I wrote this book because I have for many years now been trying to think about how I could use my privilege as somebody who is well-paid in a secure employment position and has a little bit of a public platform to talk about what are very distressing and unhappy and, and miserable circumstances of my own experiences of sexual violence when I was younger. And I felt for many, many years now that there has to be a way that we have more of a conversation about this more broadly. And of course, the Me Too movement has definitely started that. But I still think that there are many, many people who, like me, feel or have felt a great degree of shame and embarrassment about experiences that they've had where they have been victimized, as I was victimized on a number of occasions I was the victim of rape and of sexual abuse, and I was also in a violent domestic relationship. And somehow I have felt for a long time that if I could come out and say this happened to me, it would help to normalize it and move the conversation along. That's what I did, although I have to say this is a very different book from any book I've written before, (laughs) and uh, I think that's probably also reflected in the fact that it's a new publisher. I have a wonderful new publisher, Between the Lines, publishing in Toronto. So I picked three passages to do a short reading from, and we're going to play each of those passages and uh, have a little bit of a conversation about them. The first one is a passage about my own struggle to go public, um, to be able to stand up and say that these things happened to me and how I might be able to use that combined with my experience of the legal system to be able to put forward a case for change in the legal system. The second reading is just before I go into a settlement meeting with the Anglican Church, who I sued for their responsibility for their minister who sexually abused me and harassed me for a year when I was a teenager. And that's 
an account of trying to go into that meeting with the Anglican Church and really explain to them and debunk to them the idea that I could possibly have consented to being sexually abused by my own church minister. And then the last piece, which is towards the end of the book, is about my experience of giving testimony in a criminal trial against the minister because uh, after I sued the Anglican Church and there was some publicity around this in the UK, another victim of the same minister, so a woman of a very similar age to me who kept this a secret like I had for 40 years, she also stepped forward and the police decided with two complainants they wanted to charge him criminally. And so the last reading is my experience of being cross-examined in a criminal trial and what that feels like as a survivor. As Julie said, we're going to play each of these clips and then the three of us are going to kind of unpack them a little bit and discuss. And I know I've got a few questions for yeah. Julie. You two have supported me through the writing of this book. So for me, it's very important. You're both part of this. That means a lot. Yes, um, thank you. <laughs> so yes, you'll hear Julie read her clips and then we will discuss. Personal coming out, the disclosure of something that has been historically seen as shameful, has a long history in activism. This history demonstrates that the more people speak up about something assumed to be shameful, sexual identity, abortion, mental illness, the examples are numerous, the more the dominant culture is forced to reevaluate the shame historically associated with it. Eventually, putting human faces to formally taboo topics changes challenges prejudices and changes attitudes. But not everyone is equal in their ability to speak up. Some have good support, some have none. Some have the privilege of education and class, white skin, and the knowledge that they begin with a believability advantage over their sisters. In 2013, I had many of these privileges. This meant I could not simply shrug and tell myself not to worry, someone else would do this. I also recognized that as a tenured professor, I did not have to worry about my job security. I had a ready to go platform at my disposal and I had learned enough from years of activism on different issues to enable me to plan a public coming out for maximum impact. Speaking up would mean that I could live up to my own strongly held principles about using my privilege for good and challenging social constructs of shame. I was also beginning to realize that speaking up would empower me too. There was just one problem. The idea terrified me. As I turned the idea of this coming out project over and over in my mind, I struggled with other deeper anxieties. A reason I had long given myself for not being open about my experiences of abuse was that those who loved me but still had no knowledge of this would be deeply distressed to learn about what had happened to me. Why would I force this ugly knowledge on them? This had kept me from speaking to even my closest friends for many decades. Most still knew nothing of any of this. I knew that once I had identified as a survivor of abuse, I could not take it back. It could change how some of my colleagues and students thought about me in ways that I could not control. I did not want my story about sexual violence to become synonymous with my identity, to be known as the abuse professor. I worried about how the whispering exchanges might go when I walked into a room. I wor worried whether some of my colleagues might be so upset by my disclosure that I would have to manage their pain as well as my own. 
I imagined that some of my male and even female colleagues might find it hard to make eye contact with me after I blew the lid off the law school's traditional ironclad discretion in all matters personal. As I tried to think all this through, another question that concerned me was whether public disclosures about my sexual history would change my relationships with students. How would my students react to this disclosure? Would there be students who would be triggered by my disclosure and suffer pain as a result? Or would students with their own history of abuse now feel a special connection to me? And would this feel excluding to other students? Would I inevitably be subject to some hurtful comments? And just how uncomfortable would everyone feel as the accepted role boundaries disintegrated in the face of this new information about me? I could not answer these questions. I had no role models for whether it was appropriate for researchers and scholars to use their personal experiences in this way to open up a public conversation. We value academics for their ability to be dispassionate and objective as they parse data and argument. Would we value their expertise in the same way if their data and argument included their personal, and in this case, deeply personal and private experiences? Was there a risk that I would be seen as using the credibility of my position for personal advantage? Might I be accused of self-promotion or attention-seeking? Was it okay for an academic to base her activism on her personal story? Finally, and most frightening of all, how did I know if I would be actually strong enough to stand up and do this, to let off the bomb? Eventually, none of my concerns, either personal or professional, convinced me to back away from coming out, but they allowed me to procrastinate for a long time. In the end, my sense of responsibility as an educated, solvent, well-supported person got the better of me. I kept coming back to what I might be able to do by speaking up about my own history of abuse. For example, encourage other survivors to speak up and disrupt stereotypes about who gets abused. Instinctively, I believe that identifying myself as a survivor of rape or sexual assault would be empowering for me. And that openness was the antidote to the shame and self-doubt I had experienced as a survivor. At minimum, Going public, even in a limited way, had the potential to create supportive relationships among myself and other survivors. If colleagues misinterpreted my motivation as publicity seeking, then so be it. The idea that anyone would want to be famous for being a victim of sexual violence was pernicious, and I knew it, I couldn't be controlled by it. I didn't know how my students might respond to my disclosures, but I assumed that with mutual care and transparency, we could together work through the issues that might arise. Increasingly, those seem to be risks I had to be prepared to take. So one of the things that always stands out to me when I read or hear that passage, Julie, you, you talked at the beginning there about the privilege of being able to, to come out. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, I know you talk about this more in the book, but I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that right now. Well, you know, I was really struck as I thought about this, and I really did think about this for years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a working parent, I didn't have a lot of, you know, quiet moments for 15 years or so. But every single time I did have a quiet moment, usually when I was traveling, you know, to work somewhere else, I would think about this. And I would think about how coming out in all kinds of contexts 
has really changed the way that people think about issues and in particular about individuals and it has helped to reduce the stigmatization of individuals but at the same time there are some costs associated with that for the individual and you know i'm a tenured professor you know you don't get anything much more secure than that mm -hmm. um you know i would have to you know turn into a mass murderer in the law school <laughs> you know run naked through the law school for a week and maybe i'd be reprimanded i mean you know i have some scope here to to be able to say you know i'm secure and and i also felt that i had learned enough about sort of telling a story in the media through all the stories that i've told over the years of other people you know when i've done research with self-represented litigants when i've done research with muslim communities this is all about you know telling those stories so those are the sorts of privilege that I felt that I had. And that was why I couldn't shake this idea that I needed to do something. Yeah, yeah, oh, I love that. Julie, I, have, I would love to ask if there's anything that you could say to your 19 year old self today, some, something encouraging, something that could possibly, you know, something that, you know, you could have heard back then that may have pushed you to speak out earlier. Is there anything oh, that you think that uh, yeah. you would want to say to yourself? Yeah. Well, my 19 year old self, I was 19 when I was date raped and yeah. became pregnant. Um, yeah. What I'd like to have said to myself was that was a rape. Yeah. I mean, it feels so extraordinary now because it was so violent. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I just never even thought of it in my own mind as rape for years and years. Instead, I did what so many women and girls do. I blame myself. Mm -hmm. I figured, oh, my God, that was so stupid. I should never have, you know, I tried to take this very drunk guy back to his room. You know, mm -hmm. like suddenly yeah. he wasn't drunk anymore when he got to his room. It just, you know, I just felt stupid. And I think that a lot of people feel that sense. It's part of the shame. Yeah. is yeah. feeling stupid but that's because we have taken years and years to understand that this is rape which which feels unimaginable now mm -hmm. but at the time and for many years after so that's what i needed as a 19 year old yeah. yeah i needed somebody to say you were raped and you were made pregnant and that is a terrible violation of you and something you will carry for the rest of your life and that person did a wrong thing. Instead, I just went on playing on the basketball team and you know, running into him occasionally at the athletic center and I just didn't know what to do. One of the other things you do in that passage is basically list all of the things you were afraid of and worried about before going public as a survivor. You know, you list all of the things that you're afraid are gonna happen. And they, that really struck me because they're also logical. Like, you know, they're all the things that I'm sure, you know, anybody. Everybody, anybody yes, would yeah. feel, yeah. So I'm, you know, I'm curious. Um, one of the things that I, I found particularly powerful was you talking about this fear of forcing an ugly knowledge on people who, who weren't aware before and put it kind of worrying about putting that burden on on other people. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how did people react? Mm -hmm. What was your actual experience? Oh, gosh, I mean, you know, this is such a great question, Dana, because this really gets at the heart of it. You know, I there are people who've known me for 25 years who didn't know any of this, mm -hmm. because I always worried about upsetting them. Mm -hmm. I knew they'd be really upset. Now, what has happened is 
of course, not quite what I expected. <laughs> what has happened is that many, many people have told me, people who know me who've read the book already, have told me that they found it incredibly upsetting and they haven't held back in mm. terms of telling me how upsetting they found it. But they have also done that in such an incredibly supportive way that I don't end up feeling like I need to take care of them. You know, my fear was always that I'd have to take care of all these really upset people yeah. and I wouldn't have the emotional bandwidth wow. to do it, you know, but that's not what's happened. Instead, people have been frank about how hard it is to read about these things that happened to me, but also that they can see that I survived. So there's, hmm. you know, the other side of the story here is I made it and yeah. so can other people. Mm -hmm. Wow. I flew to the UK with Bernie and we arranged for Sybil, my eldest daughter, to come with us to the settlement meeting, which was held in central London. We assembled in a conference room at the law firm of the litigator retained by the insurers and the church to represent them, Paula Jefferson. The others in the room were a deaconess who was there on behalf of the church to say they were very sorry, a junior lawyer working with Paula, a representative from ecclesiastical insurance group, and David, Bernie, Sybil, and I. We began as I had requested with my opening statement, which I read. I began by introducing myself and my background and acknowledging that I understood a settlement meeting was an opportunity to size up a plaintiff if the matter were to go to trial. I said that I thought that I would be credible and effective if I had to testify and was committed to doing so if necessary. I think they got that message. I then spoke about the three central issues for me, the church's use of a consent defense, their recourse to arguing that actions against them for clerical sexual abuse were time limited, and the clear strategy of minimizing the harms done to vi victims of clerical abuse. The part I enjoyed delivering the most was when I talked about their disgusting consent argument. I saw responsibility for this as shared by the church's lawyers, insurance representatives, and church representatives. In short, everyone in that room. I said as follows. We all understand that this, the consent arguments, is a standard strategy by the defense in a sex assault case. For example, in your statement of defense, it was claimed that the forced fellatio I was subjected to as a 16 and 17 year old over a period of almost a year was, quote, not unwelcome. The psychiatric report is filled with innuendos about my, quote, consent. So was my psychiatric examination. Let's role play this. I'm on my knees before the minister to whom I have gone for spiritual counseling. He unzips his pants and tells me that God wants me to suck his penis. I had never seen a penis before. I am told that this is how I will resolve my spiritual crisis. This is a test of my faith that I must pass. So let's script this. How exactly do we think that the consent conversation would be played out here? Between the person I regarded as my spiritual mentor and myself at 16, with zero sexual experience and a strong commitment to my faith? Or how did that conversation play out on the multiple other occasions when this or a similar assault took place? We are all, I hope, far too sophisticated and sensible here to even entertain 
such a ludicrous notion. I paused at this point and allowed myself a glance at the people wearing business suits sitting around the settlement table. With the exception of David, my husband Bernie and my daughter Sybil, each of whom was looking directly at me, everyone was looking intently at the yellow legal pads in front of them, their eyes downcast. No one ever raised the issue of consent with me again. My sense was that they were ashamed as they should have been. What, what else could you have needed in that room from your lawyer, from your family that may have helped you get through this a little easier if there's anything at all? Is there something that could have been added to this process? Well, you know, one of the things that, that shocked me the most about the whole process of bringing a civil claim against yeah. the church was that it had taken us, I think it was a year and a half or maybe even more like two years to get from bringing the action, alerting them to the action and having that meeting mm -hmm. about settlement. And, you know, the idea, and of course I've written about this in numerous academic contexts, but the idea that it's that hard to get people to talk about settlement, mm -hmm. where this case, you know, they had already, as you'll see, you know, if, you, if people see what, if they read my book, the minister had already been basically dismissed yeah. um, because I'd made an earlier complaint against him in Australia. So, you know, none of this was like new knowledge to the mm -hmm. church. They knew he'd done oh, it, yeah. <laughs> but they still wanted to stonewall me. And, you know, in terms of the support in the room, Moya, I mean, my lawyer, David Greenwood, was fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's not easy to have a law professor as your client, I don't think. And, you know, especially <laughs> one who's taught negotiation and mediation. For <laughs> but, you know, I told him how I wanted to handle this and that yeah. I basically wanted to be the spokesperson. And I wanted to, well, I just wanted to put it right in their faces. That's mm -hmm, what I wanted mm -hmm. to do. You know, I didn't want to sit around and shuffle papers. You didn't and want to sugarcoat anything. You wanted I wanted to say, you know, your minister sexually assaulted me repeatedly and mm -hmm. this is how he did it. Yeah. And if you think that as a 16-year-old devout Christian, I was going to, you know, say no, or I was even being asked for consent here. I mean, mm -hmm. it's just the most ludicrous idea in the world. So really what would have helped me in the room wasn't, you know, more support from David, my, my lawyer and my family who were who knew I was going? Who knew I was going to do this? I mean, Bernie and Sybil were sitting there <laughs> with grins on their faces. Yes. <laughs> but what would have made a difference would have been having people in the room who were prepared to say at that point, "This is awful. We will never use this consent argument again. We are ashamed that we even did this. Mm -hmm. And now let's talk about what kind of resolution you want." Nice. Instead of which, none of them knew what to say. Yeah. They, just say they just stared at their just, legal pads. Yeah, look down they just, just, just looked down. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. my, my question here is, how did it feel to read that statement? Mm -hmm. was, it, was it empowering? Was it cathartic? Was it, I know it was probably difficult. Um, what, what did it feel like? Well, it's a great question. I mean, it was totally surreal. And when I think about it now, it's still so vivid, but so surreal. Um, because I knew I was doing something that probably had never been done in that legal boardroom before. <laughs> I was mm -hmm. talking about penises <laughs> and role-playing consent. I mean, but it felt great. 
Is that absolutely great? Because I was finally in a position, I think this is so important for survivors and so important for anybody in the legal system. I was finally at a place where I felt I had some control Mm -hmm. because so much of what goes on in the legal system, we don't feel like we have control over. And I can say this to all those listeners out there. It's the same as when you're a law professor, believe me, it's no different. And you'll see that if you read my book, but Mm -hmm. at this moment I had control. Yeah. And I was emotionally ready, you know, I'd really kind of, I practiced this mm-hmm. speech and I'd written it out and, you know, I suppose one word would be, which is, you know, a little, in some ways, a little, you know, childish, gleeful. <laughs> I knew I was going to stick it to them <laughs> when I told them this yeah. and I, I was going to embarrass them and it felt great. <laughs> That's amazing. I kind of wonder that when I was uh, hearing you read it again, and yeah. of course I've read it, previously but i was kind of thinking like oh but it felt like a little bit of like revenge oh yes <laughs> oh yeah sticking it to them yeah, so yeah. Right. here's real life people and i'm gonna yeah. talk about it they can't run away from them yes they can look down at their legal pads but they can't run away from it it's right there <laughs> <laughs> that's right i had agreed with some reluctance because i felt i had no advocate in the courtroom with the crown prosecutor's decision not to examine me on the stand beyond confirming who I was and introducing me to the court. This was her preferred strategy because she said that my video statement was extremely clear and really she did not need to ask me anything further. What I had not expected, however, was that when I was cross-examined by defense counsel, that she would be entirely passive, allowing me to be berated over and over again with the same question. One question I was asked repeatedly in cross-examination was whether the minister had ejaculated into my mouth when I gave him oral sex, defense counsel's words. I corrected the question, you mean when I was forced to give him fellatio? I was then asked five or six times whether or not he had ejaculated. Each time I said, no, not that I could remember. For myself, I imagined that I could have easily made myself forget such a disgusting detail. At the time, amazing though this is to contemplate in the internet age, I was not even aware that there was such a thing as ejaculation. Again and again, defense counsel asked me the same question. She was probably trying to make the jury think this was an essential detail I could not possibly have forgotten. Finally, the judge intervened. She has answered that question many times now, counsel, please move on. In order to keep myself calm and centered, my family and friends, and I knew that I had to resist the temptation to respond to defense counsel's more outlandish questions with my customary sarcasm. I had a mantra written on a notepad that I took with me into the witness box. It said, let the jury see that she is a bully. Each time I felt my patience beginning to crack and outrage creep up on me at the line and type of questioning, I made myself read my mantra. I read it many times and it helped me helped to keep me from plunging into hand-to-hand combat with defense counsel, which I was ready to do. I had a second mantra also on that piece of paper, one my therapist had given me a few years before. It was core to my objectives in putting myself through this, and it was extremely helpful in those moments when I felt victimized and upset. It said, whenever you feel lonely, remember you are doing this for a whole community. There were some other lines of questioning during the almost three hours that I was cross-examined that illustrate the tendency of criminal defense to focus on a world that is not a reality, 
for sexual assault survivors. When I described him masturbating while he drove me in his car, I was asked, wasn't that dangerous to drive while masturbating? Weren't you afraid? Well, yes, I was afraid, but being in a road traffic accident was not top of my fear list at that moment. When I described how Griffiths often wanted to go swimming in the sea during our driving lessons, mysteriously losing his swimming trunks on each occasion, defense counsel queried, wasn't it a strange idea to combine swimming with a driving lesson? A few members of the jury had a smile on their lips at this question. If you grow up on the sea in England, you swim all the time. You combine it with every type of outing, even driving lessons, even being sexually assaulted. I began my cross-examination about 30 minutes before lunch and continued for about two and a half hours after. During the lunch break, I was told I could not speak to or eat with my family and friends. I sat in a witness room where I chewed on a grilled cheese sandwich and talked to Bernie who sneaked down to see me. Then it was back into the courtroom and the badgering started up again. At the end of the day, I was exhausted, but holding it together. Sybil and David, who had both watched the day of testimony, each had to return to their home base, Sybil to London, David to Wakefield. We had a quick beer together and then took them to the train station. It was over, I was done. The Crown Prosecutor said she was very happy with my testimony. From my point of view, I was allowing myself to feel very little. So far, so good. Bernie and I went for a walk on the beach at Portsmouth. So in the in your third uh, reading, I think I think what I was what I really loved hearing was that you came in prepared um, with these phrases and mantras just to you know calm you and get you through uh, being on the stand. And one, I wanted to know like how many did you bring into court? You talk about two um, mm. in this reading, but did you have a, a longer list? And just I just kind of want to know if there was anything else. Um, no, that, that, that was it. Those were, Those were my two. Um, one was, uh, of course, you know, that the jury see. The I love that one. I really. love it. <laughs> um, and and my family wanted gave me that one. My family yeah, wanted I wondered. to have that yeah. one because they knew that when I started being cross-examined and asked, you know, are you sure you're not mixing this up? Or are you sure you didn't make that up? And all these ridiculous things I was being asked, they knew I would start getting sarcastic and snarky because <laughs> right. that's yeah. my way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, they said to me quite rightly, you know, that's not gonna go down well with the jury. You know, mm -hmm. they don't want to see you being snarky. So just let her, let her demonstrate by the way she behaves that she's being a bully. And I mean, she really was. She was an extraordinarily, almost caricature oh. defense counsel. I mean, it was just the worst imaginable. And, you know, for anybody who reads the book or who's listening to this, who thinks, oh, it wouldn't be like this in Canada. Let me assure you it is. It's no difference. <laughs> you know, this was a particularly egregious example of defense counsel whacking the victim, me, uh -huh, uh -huh. on the stand. But it's not something that doesn't happen in Canada, just so, you know, let's not pat ourselves on the back. Um, but the other thing about my mantras that was interesting was that, you know, you're not supposed to bring anything into the witness box with ah. you. And I had them written on, you know, in a book, on a piece of paper that I, that I had with me. And I occasionally looked down to sort of 
calm myself. And at one point, defense counsel actually started going after me about that. What are you looking at? What have you got with you? And I said, just a couple of words to keep me calm and reassure me. And, you know, she was like starting to go at me just for having something with me that would give me comfort, but the, the judge cut her off. So. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I did not know that at all. Hmm. So I want to know, and I know, you know, we have talked about this previously, so, you know, Moy and I do know mm-hmm. a little bit about, about this, but for our listeners, how did you feel after testifying? And I know, and you did it twice. Um, <laughs> what, what was the, how did it feel? What was the toll? Cause I know it was mm-hmm. very hard. Yeah, I mean, it, it's this is hard to explain, but but again, I think it's an important part of this book because what it was like for me as a you know a legally trained person, familiar with cross examination, to go through this was in many ways I don't think any different from anybody else. I mean, I had a lot of advantages insofar as I knew what to expect, but at an emotional level, I don't think it's really any different. For anybody else and effectively what you're being told when you testify in these circumstances what you're being told by defense counsel is that you're lying mm-hmm. and obviously I knew I wasn't lying and it seemed to me to be completely ridiculous that anybody would imagine that 40 years later living in a different country I would make all this stuff about somebody because I had nothing better to do with my time <laughs> yeah But there's still something incredibly morally corrosive about being told you're a liar. Um, You know, even just having that kind of associated with you, because, you know, we grow up with this feeling that, you know, one of the very worst things in the world is to lie. You know, I certainly grew up that way. I I know you guys were raised that way too. So to to have it insinuated that you're lying, is, is really corrosive. And I think that after the first time I testified, I was almost like a little bit in shock. I know that sounds a bit weird, but you know, I went through the course of the evening. We had a perfectly lovely evening, myself and Bernie. I went for a nice long walk on the beach, which was incredibly restorative to me because you know, this is where I grew up and on mm-hmm. the sea. But it was, it was hard. And then when I had to do it all over again in the retrial, which people will be able to read about in the book, it was exactly the same thing. I mean, I thought maybe it would be easier the second time, but it wasn't. It was just as bad. <laughs> so, Julie, why do you think that so many, so many survivors aren't coming forward and aren't speaking up? What do you think is, you know, some of the top point, reasons why, why that, uh, they're hesitant to do so? Well, I think the first one, and, and I hope that you know, despite my public persona, people understand this when they read the book. The first one is Mm -hmm. Mm self-doubt. You know, I mean, I might not look like a publicly self-doubting person, but believe me internally, that's the process that you go through. Does anybody want to hear this? Will people believe me? Will they think differently about me? I mean, all those fears that I talk about in the early part of the book, Um, You know, once you've done it, you can't take it back. It's out there and it's going to be associated with me. And I think that means that even, you know, at the level of deciding to make a formal complaint, whether that be to police or to a university or to a church, that's a huge step for a survivor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think there's a big gap between 
being willing to disclose, which is the first step, and then being willing to report. And that's one of the things that I think that we need to learn a lot more about in developing our systems. And I think, you know, that the other thing that holds survivors back are the flaws in the legal system that I try to set out in this book as a result of my experience. I mean, the length of time this takes, the emotional investment, the traumatic nature of being faced with horrible consent arguments as a defense, which is, you know, what we talked about earlier. And then, you know, feeling that you're dealing with a sort of monolithic institutional lack of empathy. And I think, you know, that's been my experience and that's often survivors' experiences when they deal with an institution. You know, there are so many things that we are told uh, as survivors, oh, well, we can't talk about that, or oh, well, we can't do that, or oh, well, this is our procedure and you have to do this. You know, and it's not survivor focused. It's focused on protecting institutions Mm -hmm. and protecting people's reputations. And, you know, all of those things, survivors look at what happens to other people who go through this in some of the more public trials, and they think, <laughs> not me. And, and I think that's, that's perfectly, totally understandable. Yeah. But I would say, and this has been one of the things I was hoping the book would do, and, and I think it is happening, I've heard from a lot of people. I've heard a lot of disclosures from a lot of people in the last couple of months since the book came out. Some of them people I know who've told me things that I never knew about them before, which has also highlighted for me just how deeply we buried these secrets because Mm -hmm. some of these are people I've known a long, long time who've disclosed to me now. And then complete strangers who, you know, are deciding it's time for them to say something. But as I mentioned, the difference is deciding you want to disclose and deciding you actually want to try to take this on in the legal system, that's a big additional step. And, you know, I don't want to discourage people from doing it, but I want us to think very concretely about how we can make it at least a little bit more manageable for survivors. You know, you know, you've said you've had survivors reach out to you and tell them, tell you their stories. For those who are on the fence about speaking up and coming forward, do you have any advice or words of encouragement for them? Uh, just to kind of well, first of all, I would say very clearly, this is not, you know, supposed to be a call for every survivor to go public. I mean, I really don't want it to be understood that way. Yeah. Um, this isn't for everybody, and that sort of takes us right back to the beginning of the conversation when I talked about this responsibility of my privilege weighing on me for years and years and years before I actually felt that I could do this. So it's definitely not for everybody, but at the same time, I want this to be an affirming account of survival and recovery. You know, I I have had a a wonderful life, um, a functional life, and that is possible. And I think that this has to be very, you know, in terms of advice, very small steps for people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the people who've disclosed to me in the last couple of months um, haven't told their families yet, for example, you know, and it's kind of like a step at a time. And I just really like it if we could find a way to build some systems to support people at that sort of very raw disclosure stage so that people can do exactly what they want around that 
and then decide if they want to take any further steps or not. Um, but above all, I want people to not feel like they're alone, that there are many, 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 many people out there who've had experiences just like mine. Thank you, Julie. Thanks, Julie. Thank you.